Section 9 of The Lost Valley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jared Wetzel Brown. The Lost Valley by Algernon Blackwood. Section 9. It is impossible to know precisely what he felt all that morning in the mountains. His emotions charged like wild bulls to and fro. He seemed conscious only of two master feelings. First, that his life now belonged beyond possibility of change or control to another. Yet, secondly, that his will-tried and tempered weapon of steel that it was held firm. Thus his powerful feelings flung him from one wall of his dreadful prison to another without possible means of escape for his position involved a fundamental contradiction. The new love owned him, yet his will cried, I love Mark. I hold true to that. In the end I shall conquer. He refused, that is, to capitulate, or rather to acknowledge that he had capitulated. And meanwhile, even while he cried, his inmost soul listened, watched, and laughed, well content to abide the issue. But if his feelings were in too great commotion for clear analysis, his thoughts, on the other hand, were painfully definite, some of them, at least, and, as the physical exercise lessened the assaults of emotion, these stood forth in sharp relief against the confusion of his inner world. It was now clear as the day, for instance, that Mark had been through a battle similar to his own. The chance meeting with the professor had led to the acquaintance with his daughter, then, swiftly and inevitably, just as it would have happened to Stephen in his place, love had accomplished its full magic, and Mark had been afraid to tell him. The twins had traveled the same path, only personal feeling having clouded their usual intuition. Neither had divined the truth. Stephen saw it now with pitiless clarity, his brother's frequent visits to the hotel, omitting to mention that the notes of invitation probably also included himself, the desire, nay, the intention to stay on, the delay in packing, and a dozen other details stood out clearly. He remembered, too, with a pang how Mark had not slept that memorable night. He recalled their enigmatical conversation on the balcony as the sun rose, and all the rest of the miserable puzzle. And, as he realized from his own torments what Mark must also have suffered, be suffering now, he was conscious of a strengthening of his will to conquer. The thought linked him fiercely again to his twin, for nothing in their lives had yet been separate, and the chain of their spiritual intimacy was of incalculably vast strength. They would win. When back to one another's side again, Mark would conquer her, he, Stephen, would also in the end conquer her. But with the thought of her lying thus dead to him, and his life cold and empty without her, came the inevitable revulsion of feeling. It was the anarchy of love, the face, the perfume, the rushing power of her melancholy dear eyes, with their singular touch of proud languor, and a word, all the amazing magic that had swept himself and Mark from their feet tore back upon him with such an invasion of entreaty and command that he sat down upon the very rocks where he was and buried his face in his hands, literally groaning with the pain of it. For the thought lacerated within, 
To give her up was a sheer impossibility. To give up his brother was equally inconceivable. The weight of thirty-five years' love and associations thus gave battle against the telling blow of a single moment. Behind the first lay all that life had built into the woof of his personality hitherto, but beyond the second lay the potent magic, the huge, seductive invitation of what he might become in the future. With her, the contest in the nature of the forces engaged was an unequal one. Yet all that morning, as he wandered aimlessly over ridge and summit and across the high Zhe'a pastures above the forest, meeting no single human being, he fought with himself as only men with innate energy of soul know how to fight. Bitterly, savagely, blindly, he did not stop to realize that he was somewhat in the position of a fly that strives to push from its appointed course the planet on which it rides through space. For the tides of life itself bore him upon their crest, and at thirty-five these tides are at the full. Thus gradually it was, then, as the hopelessness of the struggle became more and more apparent, that the door of the only alternative opened slightly and let him peer through. Once ajar, however, it seemed the same second wide open. He was through, and it was closed behind him. For a different nature, the alternative might have taken a different form. As has been seen, he was too strong a man to drift merely. A definite way out that could commend itself to a man of action had to be found. And, though the raw material of heroism may have been in him, he made no claim to a martyrdom that should last as long as life itself. And this alternative dawned upon him now, as the gray light of a last morning must dawn upon the condemned prisoner. Given Stephen, and given this particular problem, it was the only way out. He envisaged it thus suddenly with a kind of ultimate calmness and determination that was characteristic of the man. And in every way it was characteristic of the man, for it involved the precise combination of courage and cowardice, weakness and strength, selfishness and sacrifice, that expressed the true resultant of all the forces at work in his soul. To him, at the moment of his rapid decision, however, it seemed that the dominant motive was the sacrifice to be offered upon the altar of his love for Mark. The twisted notion possessed him that in this way he might atone in some measure for the waning of his brotherly devotion, his love for the girl, her possible love for him. Both were to be sacrificed to obtain the happiness, the eventual happiness, of these other two. Long, long ago, Mark had himself said that under such circumstances one or other of them would have to go. And the decision Stephen had come to was that the one to go was himself. This day among the woods and mountains should be his last on earth. By the evening of the following day, Mark should be free. I'll give my life for him. His face was gray and set as he said it. He stood on the high ridge, bathed by sun and wind. He looked over the fair world of wooded vales and mountains at his feet, but his eyes turned inward, saw only his brother and that sweet eastern face. Then darkness. He will understand and perforce accept it. And with time, yes, with time, 
the new happiness shall fill his soul utterly, and hers. It is for her, too, that I give it. It must, under these unparalleled circumstances, be right. And although there was no single cloud in the sky, the landscape at his feet suddenly went dark and sunless from one horizon to the other. End of section 9